Rumors are interesting things that have a way of catching on quickly, that can make or break a person's good or bad name, and like the game of telephone, have a way of changing and amplifying it to something completely different from what was originally said or composed. One such rumor, circulating since the 19th century, is that the notorious French pirate Jean Lafitte rescued former French Emperor Napoleon Bonaparte from the latter's self-imposed exile on the island of St. Helena in the South Atlantic, only to bring him to New Orleans where the two lived out their days as friends, the monarch being eternally grateful for the pirate's kindness. There's absolutely no historical evidence to support this, but it nevertheless remains one of the fascinating details surrounding Lafitte's story. Of course, there's a great deal more to Lafitte, most of which is true and actually happened. I'm Chester Sakamoto, your host, and today we'll be examining the life and times of the man whose biography reads like an adventure novel, full of intrigue, excitement, and above all, rumors, Jean Lafitte, right here on the History Loves Company podcast, because history is shaped by all of us. If you've ever been to Disneyland, chances are you've ridden on the classic Pirates of the Caribbean ride. Personally, it's my favorite ride there, and as a fun and enlightening journey back to 18th century America, when pirates and other rogues ruled the seas. For those unfamiliar, the ride begins with the journey through the Louisiana Bayou, at a fictional place known as Lafitte's Landing. This location, of course, is named after the infamous Jean Lafitte, the privateer who made a living through piracy and other means in the Gulf of Mexico in the early years of the 19th century. Like Blackbeard and Barbarossa before him, Lafitte has since been elevated to semi-legendary status as far as seafarers are concerned, so much so that it becomes difficult to tell where fact ends and legend begins. So what, then, are the real, honest-to-God facts about him? Even the place of his birth remains hotly contested, with some scholars placing him in Biarritz, at the heart of the French Basque country. Still others believe him to have been born on the island of Saint-Domingue, now the country of Haiti in the Caribbean. The latter location fits perfectly with the narrative of his life, though it remains unclear whether he was born in Europe or in the West Indies. In any case, it's believed that he spent much of his childhood at sea, as his father was a traitor. The young Jean was quite close with his elder brother Pierre, and indeed the two would go pirating together in their adult years. The two received a Catholic education, though whether in France or French holdings in the Caribbean is also unclear, and were later enrolled in a military academy on the island of St. Kitts. As a young man, he was described as, quote, sharp and resourceful, but also handsome and friendly, enjoying drinking, gambling, and women. It's also said that as a privateer, he, quote, adopted more aristocratic mannerisms and dress than most of his fellow privateers. This latter characteristic is perhaps best corroborated in a portrait thought to have been painted during his lifetime, in which he dons an elegant black felt hat, complete with white feather plume and fine clothes of red satin. As Lafitte's native tongue was French, he was proficient in English, and had at least a working knowledge of Spanish, this made him an ideal candidate for work in the culturally and linguistically diverse Caribbean. He and his brother Pierre began their careers by entering the lucrative maritime trade industry of the region, setting up a base of operations in New Orleans. At the time, the city and its environs were newly acquired territory for the United States, as they bought the famed Louisiana Purchase from none other than Napoleon Bonaparte and the French government in 1803. This opened up a whole new channel, aquatic pun intended here, of business for America, as the port of New Orleans meant that goods could be shipped from the Caribbean, Europe, and Africa via the various seaways crossing the Atlantic. For a time, it looked as if Jean and Pierre would benefit from this venture, but trouble was looming on the horizon. By 1808, tensions between the United States and Britain came to a head again for the first time since the latter's defeat in the American Revolutionary War. Said tensions led the U.S. government to pass and quickly begin enforcing the Embargo Act, which barred American ships from docking in foreign ports and, in turn, banned foreign goods from entering the United States. 
The idea was to stifle and ultimately to prohibit trade with Britain, though it had devastating effects for the New Orleans-based merchants in particular, whose entire livelihood relied primarily on trade with Caribbean and other foreign ports. With so much uncertainty and their careers hanging in the balance, the Lafitte brothers decided to leave New Orleans altogether in favor of a small, sparsely populated island due southeast known as Barataria in the bay of the same name to start a little, shall we say, illegal operation. Accessible through a narrow passage between the barrier islands of Grand Terre and Grand Isle, it would prove an ideal location for smuggling, as it was far enough away from the U.S. naval base and out of sight from the prying eyes of customs officials patrolling the shore. Once ships made it to Barataria, workers would unload the contraband and, skillfully navigating the surrounding swampy bayous, transport it to New Orleans. Pierre, it was agreed, would stay in the city to look after their interests there, while Jean would oversee operations on the island by hiring privateers and arranging for the smuggling of stolen goods. Soon Barataria became a hotbed of illegal activity, drawing all sailors of questionable morals, where they'd work on the docks and in the warehouses until chosen by privateers to be part of a crew. Just two years into the establishment of this venture, business on the island was booming. By 1812, tired of their roles as brokers, the Lafitte brothers bought a schooner and hired a man by the name of Trey Cook to captain it. As the vessel didn't have an official commission from any government, it was automatically deemed a pirate ship and was therefore operating illegally. The following year, the Lafittes took their first prize, a Spanish slaver ship with some 77 slaves on board. Both the human and material cargo fetched them a hefty sum, some $18,000 worth, despite the fact that both the United States and Britain had banned Atlantic slave trading five years prior. The Spanish, on the other hand, continued to import slaves to the Caribbean well into the 19th century. But the brothers didn't just gain profit from this capture. They also recommissioned the ship itself, renaming it the Dorada. Just weeks after this, they used her to capture a schooner loaded with some $9,000 in goods. After stripping the vessel of its cargo, however, they returned it to its owner, allowing both its captain and crew members to live, and in fact treating them well. This was considered an unusual practice for pirates at this time, and it quickly cemented the Lafitte's reputation for being decidedly fair and just in their matters of theft. They soon captured and recommissioned another ship, the La Diligente, equipping her with 12 cannons. Using the Dorada, they also managed to score a third, a schooner they renamed Petit Milan. Between these three ships, the Lafitte brothers set sail through the Caribbean in what one historian describes as, quote, one of the largest privately owned corsair fleets operating on the coast, and the most versatile. Indeed, the pair used the system of the time to their advantage, sending ships with quote-unquote legal cargo directly to New Orleans before taking on outgoing provisions in the city itself. From there, the crew would draw up a ship's manifest that listed all smuggled items stored on Barataria. As customs agents seldom, if ever, checked outbound ships from New Orleans, the pirates were able to successfully transport these contraband goods in and out of the city. But the good times, if you will, were numbered for the Lafitte brothers. In 1810, the first non-colonial governor of Louisiana, William C. C. Claiborne, took a leave of absence, leaving one Thomas B. Robertson in charge. Where Claiborne had decidedly been quiet in matters of piracy, Robertson was outspoken, and indeed was one of the first to draw attention to the matter, referring specifically to the Lafitte operation as, quote, brigands who infest our coast and overrun our country. The truth of the matter, though, is that he was largely alone in this. The people of New Orleans had in fact benefited from the smuggling operation, obtaining luxuries that otherwise would have been denied them given the Embargo Act. As such, the Lafittes weren't regarded as villains by the general public, but as heroes. Indeed, when Claiborne resumed his post as governor, he continued to remain silent on the matter. 
The biggest change for the Lafitte's, however, would take place on June 18, 1812, when the United States fatefully declared war on Britain in what would later become known as the War of 1812. At the time, Britain boasted the most powerful navy in the world. The United States, on the other hand, had a miserable pittance in comparison, meaning that they had to resort to seizing any and all privately owned armed vessels upon which they could get their hands, including those of Jean and Pierre Lafitte's fleet. In New Orleans, the U.S. government distributed what were known as letters of marque to known smugglers, giving them the authority to seize cargo from captured British ships. For a time, the Lafitte's themselves assisted in this venture, though they also raided non-British ships on the side, thus continuing their smuggling operation out of Barataria despite the mounting conflict. Naturally, word of this soon reached American authorities, who began drawing up plans to halt these illicit activities. As the United States Navy didn't have enough ships to dispatch to Barataria, they instead turned to U.S. courts. On November 10th that same year, New Orleans District Attorney John R. Grimes charged Jean Lafitte with, quote, violation of the revenue law. Three days later, on the 13th, a Friday, that most notorious of unlucky days, a force of some 40 soldiers stormed the island, capturing Jean, Pierre, and some 25 unarmed smugglers. In addition, the troops seized several thousand dollars worth of contraband. Able to make bail, the pirates were released and quickly disappeared, refusing to return for their trial. For four months, there was no word of Jean Lafitte or his men. But then, in March of 1813, despite being under indictment, Jean emerged to register himself as captain of a ship known as Le Brigue Goelette La Diligente, supposedly bound for New York. Some historians, including Lafitte biographer Jack Ramsey, believe that this venture was to, quote, establish him as a privateering captain. Though Jean received a letter of marque from Cartagena in what's now Colombia during this voyage, he never sent any British loot there. Instead, he channeled it all through his smuggling operation, ultimately sending it back to his base of operations on Barataria. If this had been the only offense Lafitte committed, perhaps the authorities would have looked the other way. But continued flouting of the law soon drew the attention and ire of Governor Claiborne back in Louisiana, who, on March 15, 1813, broke his silence against piracy at last, issuing a very public as well as a very pissed-off proclamation against the Barataria operation, stating that, quote, "...those who act in contravention of the laws of the United States do so to the evident prejudice of the revenue of the federal government." It was printed in the Niles's Weekly Register, a publication that was read nationwide. For the first time, the name Jean Lafitte was on the lips of people throughout the country. Thus began his notorious widespread reputation. Seven months later, revenue officers were sent to Barataria to collect the contraband as well as ambush Lafitte and his men. I should like to say that things went off without a hitch, but sadly that wasn't the case. One of the officers was wounded in the exchange between the two factions, and the smugglers made off with the loot once more. Furious at this turn of events, Governor Claiborne offered a $500 reward for the pirates' capture. What ensued was proof that Lafitte and his band indeed had a cheeky sense of humor. For just two days after the governor's offer, handbills began appearing all over New Orleans offering the same reward for the governor's arrest. It's unclear whether Jean himself had made them, or if the general public had done so, who was largely on his side by that time. In any case, the governor didn't appreciate them, and knew that he had to try a different tack. With nowhere else to turn, Claiborne appealed to the state legislature, citing lost revenue due to the smuggling operation. He simultaneously requested to gather a militia so as to, quote, disperse those desperate men on Lake Barataria, whose piracies have rendered our shores a terror to neutral flags. At least on the surface, the legislature responded by appointing a committee to look into the matter further, but as most of the elected officials and their constituents were on the take and benefited from Lafitte's smuggling, the request didn't go any further. At this point, one can't help but feel a bit of sympathy for poor Governor Claiborne, who'd done nothing short of tearing his hair out trying to put a stop to all this illicit activity, yet no one would heed his calls or warnings. 
As it would turn out, however, a merchant, indeed one of the leading merchants in New Orleans at the time, would testify against Lafitte before a grand jury, stating that the pirate had taken business away from the city's merchants by selling goods at a much lower price than they were. In what must have been a relief for Claiborne, Jean was arrested, tried, convicted, and sentenced on charges of, quote, having knowingly and wittingly aided and assisted, procured, commanded, counseled, and advised persons to commit piracy. For a time, it looked as if Lafitte's days as a pirate and smuggler were over. But little did he, or anyone else for that matter, suspect that things were only just beginning for our roguish hero. Tune in again next Thursday for the exciting conclusion on the life and times of Jean Lafitte, right here on the History Loves Company podcast, because history is shaped by all of us. This is Chester Sakamoto signing off. See you next time.